0: Hello everyone, I'm delighted to have Anthony Samaroff return to the podcast today to talk about his new book and how we can realistically end global poverty. Okay, here's our conversation. You've written this book, Universal Basic Income For and Against, and although ultimately it's something you're against, you don't strawman the for because you really were Mm -hmm. for it at one point, Um, it's something you've spoken about in other places, the whole Universal Basic Income and people can read the book and find it like they're interested in that for me the really exciting part of the book the part i really enjoyed and and read it in one sitting because of this Mm. was the majority of the book is devoted to what can we actually do to end poverty but you don't put it like that i'm going to read the quotation because i think it's Mm. it's a place it's a real meeting place between left right up down back front wherever you are on the political spectrum I think we all have this sense that there's something not quite right in the world. And I think this drives a lot of the left-wing support for a Jeremy Corbyn in this country, mm-hmm. a Bernie Sanders in the United States, is the sense that the game is rigged in some way mm-hmm. with the level of wealth disparity we see, with the level of technology we've incorporated into the society recently. We're not seeing the benefits of that. And if we're not seeing the benefits, the really poor people in the world, they're really not seeing the benefits. And you have this quotation um, early on in the book about ending poverty, which says, perhaps we're starting with the wrong question. Instead of asking what we can do to alleviate poverty, perhaps we should begin with a discussion of why, after 250 years of unprecedented, (laughs) unprecedented economic growth, we still have poverty to the degree that we have it. Okay, so... And that's that's a great meeting point, I think, that mm. everyone can see that. And you go on to talk about how uh, through the 1850s um, you see income rising from like $3 a day. It shoots up to now over $100 a day. Um, the average income in the Western world uh, is $33 globally. Um, and working hours fall from down from 61 hours um, in 1870, 48 by the 1920s and then it drops again to where we're at 37 by the year 2001 and then it plateaus right so there's some, uh, but we've seen this whole technological revolution of the internet since then so you go through about half a dozen points in the book of mm-hmm. why it is that we're not seeing this translation of the wealth we're creating to less and less working hours to third world countries coming out of poverty to the ending of poverty in our own and we'll go through them and by the end of this, if people aren't clued into that already, I think they'll have a pretty good sense of what's going on there and why we're not seeing the eradication of poverty globally, where yes. we have in countries like South Korea. okay and if they read your book, they'll certainly have a, a good sense of that and the first one you mentioned is this um this price inflation thing right right now, just as a, a funny anecdote, I remember my um my f- first experience coming into contact with this was I was at my grandparents' house and my mother explained to me that i must be very careful with this particular ornament of a gun dog because it was very expensive mm. it cost 10 pounds right? right now even in the 1980s i knew enough to say to my mother mom 10 pounds it's a nice ornament but 10 pounds is not horrendously expensive right and mm. she said ah, yes but it used to be right, right. And, and that baffled my five year old mind like Okay, you're telling me money gets less; um, it has less worth over time, right? I was thinking, like, geez, yeah. I better go spend my piggy bank, right? It's gonna, it's gonna disappear or something, you know. And and that was just a weird thing about reality that I accepted, but it is a very weird thing, and it's not always been the case, right? In in centuries right. gone by, um, a pound sterling was a pound sterling was a pound sterling at the beginning and end of a century. Same with the dollar. Um, so, could you please explain how that comes about and also crucially how it affects people how it's it's not just that everyone's money is worth less equally but some people's money is worth less than others because of this process
1: Mm. thank you for that yeah i liked your personal anecdote i mean i remember the thing that i remember watching was whenever we were driving in the car and we went past a petrol station um the price of petrol going up over time, and I always used to wonder at it, and wonder when it was going to reach a pound or whatever. And then, you know, just the price of confectionery going up every time when you're a kid, and I used to think, oh gosh, things are more expensive. Um, And no one really talks about it, it's just accepted as a fact of life, you know, like death and taxes. But it's interesting to note that in a way, money is also in some sectors worth more i mean if you go out and spend two or three hundred pounds on a telly you're going to get much better machine than you would have got for the same amount of money in the 1970s and the laptop that i'm speaking to you on just now uh, something with the same specifications a few years ago would have been more expensive so in a highly technologicalized industries your money goes further but in the date but the day-to-day stuff that stays more or less the same the prices always seem to go up and up so um why is that well you have uh as I, i was just coming to the central banks in the america we have the federal reserve and here we have the bank of england now these banks are tasked with issuing the currency when you have a government one of their incentives in a democracy is, well, they want to get votes. And one of the ways they can always do that is spending more money because they say, oh, you know, we'll give you a free education or we'll give you these goodies and that and one of the ways you appeal to voters is by saying what programs you're going to launch, what things you're going to do. Broadly speaking, there's three ways that the government can raise the revenue to spend to buy things. The first one is they can tax more, but people don't tend to like having their taxes raised too much or too conspicuously. The other thing is they can run up a debt and borrow the money. And again, it's quite conspicuous. Um, not everyone has a problem with deficit spending. Certainly if they did, we wouldn't have the degree of debt, government debt that we do have. However, people aren't Generally, uh, extremely enthusiastic about it, uh, and it will have an inflationary effect, as I'll explain. The final way is to print money. So, um, the thing is, when you print money, if you can think of money as a commodity, uh, which it is. I mean, it's it's a store of value. It's uh, it's got other functions. It it's the commodity we use to trade other commodities. But it, the same rules that apply to all commodities or apply to money. If something is very abundant, um, the price of that thing will go down. Um, if it's scarce, the price of it will go up. It's basically supply and demand. We've all heard of it. When you print money, then the a number, the amount of money in the economy increases, so that money becomes less precious. It can buy less. It's worth less, right? But the interesting thing is, of course, when the central banks print money, and this is what they're often attacked for. This they can lend. They lend that money to the government at interest. So private banks that have been charged by the government with the duty of issuing the currency are then allowed to charge interest on the money that they print. They, they then borrow to. They then lend it to the government. Not only that. So that is one of these. You were saying people get a sense that there's something wrong with the society at the very issuing of the currency there's a corruption built into it the first people who get that money whoever the government gives it to whether it's a uh, crony capitalist campaign contributors or it's the people at the heads of their next project the the money that they receive is still at the highest value because there isn't An inflationary effect in the economy yet. You're just injecting that money into the economy buying those commodities or services at their current price Then the people who get that money go out and spend it and then Gradually the inflationary effect starts to set in the money becomes worth less and less by the time it's been spent and spent and spent and come to regular people like you and I the Money is now at its lower value. So you could say this is a kind of distribution, not the kind of redistribution we hear people wanting with higher taxes on the rich and what have you. Quite the opposite. It's a redistributory effect towards the top, towards the privileged, towards the rich and powerful who are most likely to get their hands on the money first. I hope that's understood.
0: That's, now, that's very, very clear, yeah, because I, I, I think people do have this sense around banks, central banks, the creation of money, there's something amiss going on. And we've seen a lot of documentaries pop up on the internet taking different angles on this with different explanations of it. But I think it's a very, very clear explanation and you've written about it clearly in the book too. Um, we So we can pop on to the next one and I'll ask the listeners the same question you ask in the book, okay? Mm-hmm. We, see if they get... Right answer, we'll give them a moment. The question is, what is the most expensive thing you will ever buy in your life? Okay, you've got five, four, Mm. three, two, one. Now, I said house price, I said house, a house, and I was Mm -hmm. wrong. Okay, what is it?
1: The actual answer is government. In Great Britain, people spend between 20 and 25 years working for the government, so over your lifetime. You'll be working to pay your taxes for twenty, twenty to twenty-five years, all things considered. Now, that is a drain on people's living standards, whether you like it or not. It's hard to get around the fact that it is. Now, a lot of people might think a lot of that is justified. Maybe some of the some of the spending is necessary, even. But, however, um, you can't. It's really hard to deny that it is is, is a cost of living and I think most people have a sense that the government doesn't spend money as well as necessarily it should. Indeed they should have a sense of that because there are, have been some meta-analyses where people have gone through studies, um, all of the studies and aggregated the information and the final conclusion was that government services tend to cost twice as much as the same services paid for in the private sector. So there's a lot of reasons for that. One is basically that market competition puts an upward pressure on quality and a downward pressure on price. If you've got a free market where there's several different agencies producing the same products, they have to be lean and also they can learn from innovations in each other. They can observe what other people are doing. When you have only one agency, the government providing the service, there's a lot less trial and error. You have you can maybe copy policies that are working in other countries. Um, I don't know where the incentive is to do that because... Of course there is. See, it's so complicated. When you vote, you have to vote for a party that's got a whole bunch of policies. No one's looking to go, well, you know, Denmark or um, the Dutch or someone else are doing, have got a much better policy on healthcare in this way and it's much more efficient and leaner and cheaper. Why haven't the government copied them? You know, it, whereas when you're... Uh, organization that's focused on producing one or or a small range of products your customers really are going to be looking at the price and the quality of that product because they buy them individually so you have a great incentive to stay at the forefront of innovation when it comes to pricing and quality because if you don't then one of your competitors will and you're going to go out of business so we don't have that kind of incentive to purchase wisely in the public sector and i, I wish this was more broadly understood
0: um, sure, and it, it links into what you were saying before right because like my first computer 20 years ago cost 1500 pounds and it was well, glorified typewriter you know Um i have no idea why we bought it but at a, a third or a quarter of the price this laptop can do anything everything under the sun um, and over the same time period healthcare costs have gone up you know, so you're right. seeing this massive decrease in some areas and an increase in others and, and why is that?
1: Well, there there's a lot of things when it comes to healthcare um that you could argue that it's an infinite um product, you know, because we could always uh, be providing more and more things. But um there's 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 also I should mention because it it's relevant to what I was saying a moment ago and to healthcare particularly, that if Uh, sector is private but it's got um, heavy amounts of regulations and patents particularly, they can actually interrupt that process of market competition because if you say to a company you're the only people who are allowed to produce this then you start to get to a lesser degree but to some degree a monopolistic effect in the private sector as well and that's, that's a big one with patents because um, they're, they're kind of, because of the regulatory structure in medicines and healthcare, it takes a very, very long time to have things actually approved, particularly in America. Um, so there's almost a need for patents because otherwise it becomes unprofitable to develop. But that wasn't the case in the past. You could get things pa- past sooner I, I fear i'm going on a tangent when it comes to healthcare, there's all sorts of articles going out and in, uh, in the telegraph over time where they're they're like oh this branch of the nhs was spending 17 pounds or whatever a pair box of um gloves whereas other places were able to buy them for 34 pence and things like that mm. Um, you simply don't have the incentive structure to be lean when the customer is not paying you for your services. No one really sees how much their medical services cost. Now, I know that people are going to rush to say, but what about the people who can't afford it and so on and so forth? This is a really, really um, ex- extraordinary, compl- extraordinarily complicated issue. But you could start with the um, premise that, you, I mean, there's all sorts of ways to tackle it. You could give people vouchers so that they go and redeem them at the hospital that they of their choice, and that would put some of the market, uh, the market incentives that exist in other sectors of the society. If we come back to your laptop, every people uh, you said that it went down. You know, fifteen hundred pounds would be buying you a state-of-the-art machine today, like. Most people don't spend that on a laptop, but if they did, you'd get something really, really incredible. The, you can. The only sectors that have really gone up in price in, in real terms are education and healthcare, and they are two of the most government regulated. Sure. So that's very, very telling. Um, I mean, we could do a whole show on healthcare. In fact, I've done one. It's oh, called. Sure,
0: I'd, I'd love to in the future. A- yeah it's um, called
1: what's wrong what's wrong with the nhs um, people can look it up on youtube right, if they right. want more
0: on that it's um with the monopoly effect anthony i think if, if people think in terms of you know the supermarket you go to imagine if they were the only supermarket and you had to buy groceries right. from them but as a concession they gave you a vote on some civilians who would have some oversight of their board of directors now, do you think you'll get a better service or right, um, that's a good from, analogy yeah so
1: also in fact much of the time even if a government is the department is develop is delivering poor outcomes right people don't actually go oh well that's doing a rubbish job we should get rid of it they usually say oh it's underfunded the government's underfunding it now that's particularly clear when it comes to the healthcare. Everyone thinks the NHS just needs more money. In fact, its budget has doubled in twenty years. They're always spending more money on it, but the reason why it's got problems is the way that we're paying for healthcare itself, um, and uh, as that's sadly the case, um, and it, it's hard to get around when you actually look at the data. Uh, and, I mean, we're we're headed for a five million waiting list for the nhs Uh,
0: but please go on oh okay well we'll go on to the 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 wrong answer i gave to the last Mm -hmm. question because it is a huge factor and it's house prices and you talk about the um the increase in house prices you you also mentioned something called public choice theory which i think if you can explain because it's very interesting thing to understand it's quite a simple thing actually when you when you lay it out and i find with with house prices this is like the one conspiracy that everyone believes in right everyone believes right. In the state is in bed with property developers in some way and and whether they are directly or not um in effect they are because property developers and property owners and um, landlords seem to be benefiting from this restriction on building but i'll turn it over to you and ask how we're not seeing the benefits of our increased technology and so on because we're pouring it into ever greater mortgages or rental payments.
1: Right. Okay. So let's ch- start with public choice theory. Public choice theory is a branch of economics which looks at public servants or politicians as human beings that are that are self-interested to a degree and subject to incentives, just the same as everyone else. So in economics, there was a branch of economics that was coming up with these terms of something called market failure, where markets were, let's say, let's put it this way, economists broadly agreed with Adam Smith when he said that it's not out of the benevolence of the baker that we get bread. It's out of the self-interest of the baker that he, he creates bread because there's a demand for bread, and by selling that bread, he makes money. And the idea there was that the self-interest of individuals are actually harmonious. As long as they don't steal or fight or um, try and get what they want, through force, their self-interest isn't going to come into contradictions. If I have a pen and you have a tie, I swap you the pen for the tie. I obviously prefer the tie and you obviously prefer the pen. We're both better off. Now, economists broadly agreed with that. However, they started to say that there's certain situations when you bring a bunch of people together in a marketplace where the self-interest of Individuals is made to conflict by something called game theory. And uh, um, so, even something like the provision of um, street lighting. um, If you try to get the private sector to pay for street lighting, well, I can just not pay and let everyone else pay. And how are you going to stop me? Because how are you going to exclude me from the street lights? Mm -hmm. Now, I don't, don't mean to go into the free market, Solutions to those problems. There's great presentations by David Friedman, the son of Milton Friedman, on things like market failure. I prefer to know it as, to call it a group rationality fa- failure. That is when what is what's rational for the individual in a group is not the same. it is is not what's rational for all members of the group to do. So supposing we were preparing for a battle and we're all sitting with our spears ready to take on an oncoming charge from the enemy. Um, it's rational for any one of us to turn around and run away, not hold our spears. However, if we all do it, then the enemy's gonna run us down and kill us all. So that's just to, d- to display that it's not just in the market, that we get these group rationality failures. It's not just market failure. So public choice theory wanted to say, well look, there's group rationality failures in government as well. It's not just the market that fails. Mm-hmm. And it wanted to study how the, for example, you know, for example about what I was saying, saying before about, it might be irrational to run up tons of debt for everyone. But for a few people, who are actually going to benefit from running up debt, say the manufacturers of ammunitions while we go to war in the Middle East, you know, they're, they're going to benefit from that. So it might be a group rationality failure for all of us to run up great debts, but for certain individual people, in fact, for all of us, we want to get, see if we all take as much as possible in public services and we pay as little taxes. That is what is rational for each of us to do as an individual. We're going to benefit from that. But as a society, we fail from that. You know, We run up tons of debt and we might have an economic collapse in the worst case scenario. So that's the long-winded explanation of what public choice theory is. It's the first time I've actually expounded it that way. So thank so you get an exclusive. I hope this I didn't exclusive. go on. Too long. <laughs> this is a major problem when it comes to housing because the politicians, um, there's maybe several times, at any point, there's several times more people who own a house than people looking for a house. So the incentives of the government is to keep the house prices as high as possible. And we saw the Tory party under John Major become unelectable after letting house prices fall. So it became a golden rule for the government do not let house prices fall, no matter what, because you get on the wrong side of voters, most of whom many of whom own a house, more of whom own a house than are looking to buy a house so it 's a it 's a group rationality failure what 's the best thing possible for everyone is if our houses are as cheap as possible, so we need to so everyone can own a house we don 't need to pay much on our mortgage or People who don't want to own a house don't have to pay much in rent. That's good for everyone. But under the incentive structure of the system, the government restricts the supply of housing. And so in many places it has laws over um, who can and can rent together. I know in Scotland you need a special license to rent a place. To more than two people who don't know each other so that's an extra expense which is then going to be passed on and the rent is quite costly to come to compliance with those with those licenses and um as a consequence we've seen house prices shoot up now this is a controversial figure but the telegraph did report it uh, that um since 1971 uh, house houses have and 2011 uh, forgive me that houses went up in price by 4255% which is astonishing now that might have been that might not have been based on studies so much as let's compare this house to this house um, it, the halifax price index has figures dating back to 1983 and according to them house prices let's say were only paying between 6 and 7 times as much now as we were in 1983, well, let's take that figure. Let's just supposing we're paying five times as much. Let's supposing we're paying four times as much. How much richer would everyone be? How much easier would it be to take care of people who don't have access to housing? If we were even paying a quarter of what we are paying just now for rent and a mortgage, you can't fail but come to the conclusion that, I mean, everyone would be rich
0: sure sure and there are ways in construction too right like i have friends who live in a beautiful wooden house which didn't cost all that much it's it's lovely right so i think you mentioned that in the book don't you that there's been tiny house projects and other things that have looked
1: yeah up. They're, they're, houses are cheap you can build a two-bedroom timber frame house for twenty-five thousand pounds and many places you're not allowed to build up in fact almost everywhere they probably got restrictions on how high now I don't necessarily agree with the restrictions, but if you're going to have them, sure they should be on a case-by-case basis. And if someone can produce for you a beautiful structure, if if the architects can come up with something that people aren't going to go, oh, that's horrendously unsightly, um, surely they should be allowed to build, even if it's tall. Another problem is the restrictions on building on the so-called green belt. Because people have a natural reaction, oh, they're greenbelt, it's irreplaceable, it's bad for the environment, etc. etc. That's people's reaction. But it's actually a complete misnomer. A lot of sites which are considered to be greenbelt, there's nothing rich or environmental about them. A lot of them are lands which aren't actually particularly valuable from an environmental perspective or as amenities. It's like agricultural land that's very unsightly. It's mostly inaccessible to the public. That which is farmed of it is not even commercially viable without handouts from the government. It's only through agricultural subsidies that the landowners are actually even able to turn a profit from that land. And it's usually prime real estate where people really, really, really want housing to be built. Mm -hmm. So it's called the green belt, but a lot of it is... There's nothing particularly green or environmental about it, but it's, we're prohibited from turning it into places where people could live and therefore meeting the demand for housing, bring the prices of accommodation down and making the society as a whole
0: richer. And there is that sense with things like the green, uh, well green, you know, green is, is nice looking right and yeah. really green and nature and and even when i fly over the island on which i live there's a lot of green there and i think yeah you know it's, it's, it would be a shame if it was all concrete one day sure. but there's the the seen ugliness but the unseen ugliness is well homelessness is, is kind of visible but the other one would be people slogging it away in jobs they hate for their whole lives and not having so much time with their family because of high pri- high house prices. That's not as visible as a housing estate on some green land, but it is another form of ugliness. Sure, and
1: the thing is, housing estates don't need to be ugly either. There's sure. lots of genius. There's lots of genius architects who would only be too delighted to design very lovely complexes for people to live in. Um, the thing is, under the current pressures. To make profit in this system um, that where the the prices of so many things are already inflated, there's less incentive to spend that extra money on aesthetics people uh, also people would be because there is a limited supply of housing people have to take what they can get. This is true in any sector of society. If there's a limit, if there's limitations in supply, if there's hardly any jobs going around and you've got very little skills, you have to take whatever conditions you can get. If you're highly skilled and there's tons of jobs, then you start saying, oh, I've got four or five job offers, which is the most appealing to me. In this climate where people have to pay so much for rent or a mortgage, A lot of them are beggars rather than choosers. In a natural free market, the supply of housing would be so abundant that people would begin to become the choosers, not the beggars. And landlords would have to adapt to fit the demand because people have got options when it comes to where to stay and they have to provide nice amenities. That's just not the case at the moment. People are beggars, not choosers when it comes to things like housing. So I, I loved your example of the unseen unloveliness of people slogging away, working longer hours, because they're they have to pay five or six or seven yeah. times as much for accommodation as they would have to on a free market. Um, also I should mention the central banks once more, you know, those great villains and um, because they have artificially depressed interest rates for decades. Um, Interest rates should be a lot higher than they are now. And if you come back to the group rationality failure, the public choice theory, well, that's good for everyone who has a mortgage. Oh, I'm paying less percentage on my mortgage. That's true on the individual basis. However, on the basis of everyone, that means more people who couldn't otherwise afford houses buy them prematurely. Oh, the interest rate's only at 3%. I can afford that. So a lot more money gets put into the housing market. As you know, the laws of supply and demand that pushes the price of housing up above where it would be with a normal interest interest rate there would be more of a trickle in and people would be buying those houses when they had the means to, the natural means to, rather than being incentivized to do it by lower interest rates. And all of these things are um, factors. So clearly there's no perfect solution on meeting the supply. There's no perfect solution on meeting the spiraling demand for housing. There's only trade offs. So we need to build out the way or we need to build up or let people live in smaller spaces you know i say in my book supposing you're a student and you live in a flat with two bedrooms what's wrong with you transforming the living room into um another bedroom with a bunk bed and renting out to two more people you might be out at uni you might have a part-time job you might be spending time in the library you might be going out partying and you only spend a little time in the flat you know you come in to get some sleep and make some noodles or whatever, well, you could you, you could seriously reduce your cost of living by being allowed to do that. But a lot of the time, there's legal restrictions that will not allow you to do that. And I'm saying the best defense against slum landlords is to have a abundance of properties so that the tenant is the chooser, not the beggar. sure. sure.
0: Okay, we've touched on the next point already, but I just want to hop back into it. This thing of occupational licensing you talk of in the book, okay? The the idea of the state needing to approve you to do your job, which um, I think it's something people think in general is a good idea to keep quacks out of various industries. Mm. I think, okay, maybe we don't need, maybe people would think in general, we don't need occupational licensing for hairdressers, okay, because right. they're probably not going to poke you in the eye with the scissors. Okay, The worst thing that's going to happen from a quack hairdresser is going to get a bad haircut. But um, in other professions, in more medical professions and so on, mm-hmm. yeah, we really want the state there to regulate. And I recall, when I read this, I recall a conversation with a massage stroke bodywork therapist from mm-hmm. the United States I had who had and um, been involved in wanting the state to get involved in licensing his industry to get the quacks out, get people who he didn't right. have sufficient training out. And then he realized he created a Franken science monster because one group, now I don't want to defame the wrong group. So it could have been the Shiatsu people it could have been the Swedish massage people, but one group got in league with the regulators and suddenly his students weren't allowed to work anymore. Right. Well, there you part go of their training. So, and then he saw the flaws of it. So, um, there's, yeah there's there's kind of the, the problem is kind of obvious but i think people throw their hands in the air Oh, so what, what can you do because we need regulation and maybe you could speak to how a free market is not a free for all necessarily you can still have regulation just not this kind of monopolized regulation
1: yeah i mean and the, the thing is you say well no people don't think hairdressers should be um should have to have licenses but Oh, there's over 800 occupations that require a license in the USA in some states, you know, from manicurist to dog walker, you know, a Christmas tree vendor, um, some places a funeral director, you need a tree groomer. I mean, there, there's all sorts. So why, who does this serve? It serves people who are already established in that industry. And so there, I actually have a article on my blog Um, called occupational licensing uh, because people assume that on a free market anyone can do anything but there's lots of alternative ways of um, regulating industries. The first one is obviously market competition which is consumers through supply and demand Okay, sometimes we buy things we regret but we tend not to do it again and again. Then you have consumer watchdogs We've all heard of which magazine people do well go and consult online They'll Google something their car or something like that before they buy it to see what watchdogs what people who are experts and Have discernment have to say another one is employer discretion Okay, so an employer doesn't want to take on a civil engineer who's not qualified to build a bridge or a plastic surgeon who's not qualified to operate on their clients. Um, Another thing you can do is you just have bodies that register people. So third parties can put you on a register and they can even strike you off the register. They can even keep a catalogue online of people who have been struck off The register. So, if people want to be discerning, they can go online and they can, or they can phone up the company or look up their website and say, Who's in my area that's going to be good at providing the service? Who's on the register? And people can get privately certified to join those registers, or they can get private training and they can put up their, you know, in their office, put up their certificates on their wall, and people can check if they're bona fide. Another thing is consumers already have protection under the law um, through litigation. So if if people sell faulty products or they're falsely advertising the virtues of their products, there's already more general regulations in place which don't require a big book to target a particular industry with regulations that might mean nothing more than the big companies can afford lawyers and accountants and actuaries to make sure they're following all the regulations where small mum and dad businesses who have fewer clients, fewer outlets, can't actually spare the expense to comply with the regulations and end up going out of business. Another thing is you can contract, you can draft up contracts with the people that you're going to receive services from. And if they define clearly the terms of who's entitled to what and for what, and if someone's in violation of those terms, then they they can be they, there's recourse under the law. Uh, and um, similarly, bonding individuals can engage in agreements in advance uh, that involve third parties to ensure that payment is transferred when it's supposed to be. Finally, insurance. Uh, well, second. It's penultimately insurance where customers buy insurance or people buy insurance against things going wrong and in some case they might get a payout for the insurance companies and other times if they're get the wrong end of the stick the insurance company can go and sue the company to regain what they what they've had to lose in payouts and then as a consequence of that that creates a disincentive for companies to in those industries where there is insurance to behave wrongly and finally just jail you know, the final one's jail. You know, if people actually do not, it's not profitable to kill your clients or to damage your customers. You know, most people, most business owners aren't trying to do that. I mean, sometimes people are careless and try and make a big, uh, a, big a quick buck. It's usually out of carelessness rather than malice that companies sometimes damage clients. But the deterrence of prison for people who harm others, that already exists. This just means that you don't need reams and reams of very specific regulations for each industry. In fact, no one really has the knowledge required to um, regulate an industry. And what ends up happening is there's a rolling door of lobbyists mm. going from government into industry, into lobbying, back into, go- you know, uh, and this is more crony capitalism. Uh, I always like to quote this statistic, that for each of the $5.8 billion spent by America's 200 most politically active corporations between 2007 and 2012, on federal lobbying and campaign contributions, they got $741 in return in kickbacks and benefits. This is coming back to your original point, that people have a sense that there's something wrong with the system, where the government is in bed with corporations. Now you think they're lobbying, some people think they're lobbying for deregulation. Nothing can be further from the truth. They're always lobbying for more regulations, because if there's more regulations, the big boys can afford to comply with those regulations, whereas new organizations that are going to come in and compete vociferously with the powers that be in that, Industry are going to get priced at the market. And so they're going to have less competition the more re- yeah. Regulations and the more complex those regulations
0: And I, I pitched that kind of from the business owners side how it's hard for business owners what I, what I liked about the way uh, You wrote it in the book. If you make it very clear? This is a real effect on consumers like whenever you go to get yes. your hair or you get to have go to get your dog Walked or your hedge caught or get a massage or anything you're paying an extra x pounds x dollars for this regulatory setup, which isn't actually serving you and in your interests.
1: Right. And I, I do go through a complete example, but people can grab the book from beyourselfandloveit.com forward slash UBI. You can get the PDF version free of the charge. Richard, you yourself were kind enough to format the, the book for Kindle. So if you want to throw me some shekels, you can also buy it on Amazon Kindle and uh, hopefully we'll have a hard copy in the new year.
0: Great. There's one more thing on my list, if that's okay. And that Please. is the role of free trade in the third world. So the most egregious example of poverty was not what's going on in our own countries but what's going on and continues to go on um in the third world like big thing when i was um a child my first encounter with poverty really was seeing the famine in ethiopia okay in this real right. the whole world out there which is completely different from the one i live in and what are we 30 years later now and um there hasn't been this great wave of economic development which has lifted africa out of poverty, and it's not a pipe dream because we did see it in other places right over a 30 yes. 40 year period south korea went from being the poorest of the poor and war-torn to top right first world living standards um so yes in some places not in others you've written a lot on this and you've written i think in the book you've, you've emphasized the aspect we have the most ability to directly affect, as opposed to what's going on in African governments that's affecting people, this issue of free trade and the IMF and so on. Can you speak to that and quality? Yeah.
1: Yes, and, you know, there's a lot of voices, even in Africa, saying we need trade, not aid. You know, it, um, by by trading with poor places, we send them our precious currency, which they really need, And they, um, and we in return, gain cheaper goods than we could, but we're actually currently prohibited by our government from importing goods from some of the poorest countries in the world. And I think that's, you know, a humanitarian disaster. It's really sad when people say, oh, but, you know, Um, We need to protect our industries here. In Western countries, we're not really ideally suited to doing a tonne of manufacturing or a tonne of growing food because the price of labour in Western countries is really high. So we should be doing more brain work, more the the kind of things that that our economies are suited to doing. Um, At the moment... Over time, this would balance out across all economies on a free market. But I think it's a real tragedy when you've got people in really poor places who would love to send us their produce. And then probably, you know, people would go build factories there if they were allowed to to, to employ the poorest people in the world, start bringing them out of poverty the few big companies who are allowed to operate in those countries can basically pay knockdown wages because they don't face as much competition as they would on a free market with free trade now as you say some of these are really domestic um issues in many african countries they're so regulated that it takes years to even be allowed to start a business and there's corrupt cops that can come and take Um, you know, take your produce or take your business away from you. You might have to bribe people. And we can basically only influence that by setting an example. As you said, I was focusing on what we in the West have, the control to change, which is to open up trade. We should be exporting ideas, not trips. You know, we've been doing all sorts of interventions in the Middle East and sometimes, well, quite a lot in, the, in South America, and to a degree, obviously, a bit more in the past in Africa. Um, and most of those interventions haven't dealt, haven't done very much good, or at least, at least as much good as we might like them to. Obviously we, we know about the legacy of colonialism, and there were all sorts of, uh, there was all sorts of abuses surrounding that. Um, nowadays, some people are saying, well, it wasn't all bad and there was various good things that the colonial powers did abroad. I'm not disputing that there might have been some ways in which colonialism uh, brought technology and medical care and things like that. However, I'm not, I'm not going to glorify that period in history. Um, what What we could say is we know that when the colonial powers left, Africa, Africa has not started to thrive or anything like that. Some places got worse for a while, um, once the colonial powers left, because, and uh, people will say, oh this is proof that the colonists were, were doing some good there or not. I'm not really sure that's actually true. I think what happened is when the colonial powers um, centralised the power in nations in Africa, so that when they left that, those nexus of power were open game for dictators to, you know, the, the network of control was established so that it was ready for a dictator, um, uh, an African dictator to take over. And many, like you mentioned, Ethiopia, they have a bad history of Marxism. They imported Marxism from abroad and it created a economic disaster. There's lots of countries in Africa that adopted various forms of um, authoritarian rule once the colonial powers left, and it left the place in chaos. In fact, a great book is Africa on Chaos. Africa in Chaos by the Ghanaian economist George Aieti. Yeah, sure. um, so so what we can, um, can export our ideas by setting a good example. Instead of exporting Marxism or authoritarian forms of government, um, and we do that by setting example, by opening our borders for, for trade. Um, and uh, we've, we've failed to do that. So um, you mentioned the IMF before. They are seen as, uh, you know, the IMF and the World Bank imposed all sorts of debts and they, they, they're sometimes seen as trying to impose free markets in Africa against the like, I think people like Noam Chomsky and some left-wingers would make that case. That, that's that's far from accurate. I mean, what they did was basically a shakedown. They go in and they say, you need to sell these cash crops or you need to do this. You know, you need to adopt these kinds of econ- economic policies and they're usually disastrous. Like sometimes they, force a, they forced an African country to sell a bunch of cash crops, but they caused an abundance of those... Crops on the world market, which left a crash in the price of that commodity, so even though they sold lots of exports, um, those exports became worthless, and it failed to help them recoup the debt that because the World Bank say lent this money to military dictators, which they just used that money to oppress their people rather than to actually advance um, their economies. So so then then those people are left with the debt that's imposed upon them. It's a huge topic, and I do address it to some degree in the book, um, Universal Basic Income For and Against. What I'm saying is, I just think that we should be trading with everyone. We should be buying goods from the, cheap, the poorest places in the world so we can help them advance their economies and help the poor in our countries. Um, Have access to cheap goods and services. There's one more point I want to say on that. When economies advance, they tend to get better educated and do more brain work. So there's this stereotype that, or at least on the right, that if those countries advance, they're going to be some kind of competition to us. That's not true. Advanced economies create innovations that everyone all over the world benefit from. So it's of mutual benefit to everyone that the poorest places in the world become developed nations because we we will also benefit from the advances that they make.
0: Yeah, and that's a great point because people do have this sense that economics is a, always a win-lose situation, right? But if everyone in the world is wealthier, then the world will be wealthier. It's, it's just kind of... Yeah, a, yeah, that, I know it, it sounds is, too simple. A little, but it's
1: a little bit tautological, but, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so most of what I've spoken about vis-a-vis the history of neo-colonialism in this interview is not actually details that I put out in the book. Um, but there but there's different details in the book. So I definitely, anyone sure. who's interested in, in, in that kind of thing, I definitely rec- uh, refer you to my free trade well, section
0: of the book. Thank you, Anthony. I'd like you to finish off um, it's on a sort of different direction, a bit more of a visionary direction and paint a picture of what the world could be like perhaps you know within our lifetimes within i'm going to say a 40 50 year period if the kind of ideas you're talking about in the book were generally accepted and addressed with the problems around house pricing with the problems of um the provision of state services with trade if these kind of uh, free market principles were better understood and adopted what kind of world would we really quickly start to shift into and i think it's um the reason i ask is because i think people have a sense right with with african countries with other countries in the third world being stuck in the state of poverty for so long it just goes on decade after decade because it's going to be 200 years and it's almost like mm-hmm. we're going to need aliens to come down and give right. us free energy technology to get us out of this mm-hmm. right um and in poverty reduction we're always pointing the cameras at poverty. It's it's striking to me how we don't really look at, hang on, what exactly did happen in South Korea in that 40-year period when mm. they completely came out of poverty? Like, poverty is a curable disease. Why is it that Botswana has, like, five or ten times the GDP of other African countries? What, what are they doing differently? So, just, I'm just asking you to be a bit imaginative and and describe what kind of world we could move into over the next half century or so if these things yeah matter. i i appreciate that and
1: yeah um south korea isn't the only example of course singapore and hong kong uh, had massive poverty reduction in the period of three decades um, largely because they instituted free market policies they're two of the most free market economies in the world so Imagine. Let's start with the starting point that your accommodation costs are 25% of what it does now. That's more money in everyone's pockets. We can import cheap goods from all over the world. The central banks don't issue the currency. We trade with Bitcoin or what or, or something new, something new that retains its value, and we don't have this continuous price inflationary effect. on on our currency. Now people don't have to put all the retirement and savings in the stock market anymore. The stock market is just a stock market for people to buy shares in companies. So we don't have all the speculation in these periodic crashes where um, where you might get Wiped out, you know, you might get your retirement fund wiped out if there was a sufficient crash most people's retirement monies in the stock market That wouldn't be necessary in a system where we didn't have central banking. You, you could trust that your money would um, retain its value um, We've got lower taxes and um, where, where people do want where people do want the government to provide services such as in education, people are given e- vouchers to redeem uh, the school that they want. So there's there's more incentive for those schools to please parents uh, and make sure that they're providing excellent quality of education so that they're, they're also leaner and more efficient. So let's say, um, rather than spending 20 to 25 years of your life working. For the government to pay your taxes, um, it's half of that, let's say. So everyone's walking away with more money in their pockets. Um, well, at least we'd see that everyone everyone's needs were met. Now, when people's needs are met, it, look if if you're poor on the outside and you feel poor on the inside, there's no difference. You look both ways; uh, uh, it looks the same. And you tend to provide. You tend to blame your lack of material condition, whatever you don't have, on your on on the fact that you're not up to standard. You don't feel the happiest you could be. That's why you see all these uh, rock stars and um, rich people after they uh, come out of uh, rehab. Deciding to go on spiritual journeys and uh, get get their life sorted and things like that, because they rose to the top, they got to the top of the world, um, at least as far as society measured it, and they they found out they were still unhappy. And I think the end of poverty will mean the beginning of an industry, um, which is related to furthering human well-being, the beginnings of a human well-being movement. Supposing the robots have taken off all the hard labour and we are just tending to work 10 to 16 hours a week for money uh, because we we, you know we need to do something for money uh but um and the rest of our time is leisure time. And a lot of people find that they're still unfulfilled because they don't think they met their potential. They've got all sorts of talents that they're not using, like they've they've left their saxophone up in the attic for 10 years and barely tooted it, and it, it still makes them feel sad, but they've got more time to do that. Um, but I feel like once humans' material needs are met, a real spotlight will be shined on human well-being and how we can create Happy people, because they'll no longer be able to blame it on their boring jobs, which they're at for thirty-five to forty-five hours, or the fact that they're they can't put food on the table, um, or or anything else. So so that's where I see things going. I see most of the hard work being automated, but then people will need something to get out of bed for in the morning, and if we're not careful, we'll become a bunch of unhealthy couch potatoes. So uh, we'll need we'll need to. Subs- to our daily yoga classes or something like that to keep our bodies and minds sharp. I I really do see, I I think it's going to go that way one way or the other. I'm quite a a long-term optimist. I might be a short-term pessimist sometimes because I see a lot of problems on the horizon. But long-term, I think you can't stop automation. You can't stop the advance of technology making goods so abundant and cheap uh, unless you get a very authoritarian government. And let's touch with I won't go that way
0: thank you very much Anthony um, I'll put links to your book below any articles you've mentioned I would implore people if they found anything this interesting there's a lot more detail there please check it out and it's really important because I think the we, we've seen how poverty can disappear from big areas of the world and I think that should be what we expect really we should expect throughout the certainly the 21st century, um, it would not be uh, a stretching goal to see poverty disappear from the earth. We should be looking to to half that time. And a lot of the proposed solutions to that are are centered around state interventions and foreign Mm. aid and um, are quite left-wing. They may be well-meaning, but we have to question the mechanics of how we're going about that because we have the right mechanical approach of benevolent, loving intention and won't get us there alone and yeah i would implore people to read anthony's book and see what is maybe a different perspective on on ending quality so Um.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate that. And what I would say is I kind of see it as, um, imagine you went to the doctor and you were like overweight and you're at risk of all sorts of chronic illnesses, right? Should the doctor just put you on diet pills? It's like, no, wait, wait a second, right? Let's see if we can get your lifestyle sorted. Let's see if you can lose some weight, if you can eat better, if you can stop smoking so much, if you can stop drinking so much, taking drugs, whatever it is that you're doing that's negatively influencing your health. And then if you still need some medication and things like that, then we'll give you those. And that's what I see as the problem with the left-wing approaches to trying to tackle poverty. It's like, why don't we just stop doing the things that we're doing now, which are perpetuating poverty, over-regulating the economy, uh, having high taxes, um, interfering in the housing market, not allowing ourselves to import cheap goods from abroad, um, printing money, all of these things, right? Let's stop doing the things that are causing the illness first. And then if we still have problems, then we can look at the other approaches. So, you know, I, I think that the idea of let's just take money from the rich and give it to the poor is very, unsophisticated approach first of all the rich really don't have that have enough money to to do it but what what's more what's going to happen when you take it from the rich and give it to the poor they're going to go out to the shops, spend at the shops it goes back to the rich people (laughs) you know you're not actually solving the problem in a systemic way so i really i hope that people will download the free copy of my book be yourself and love forward slash ubi read it enjoy it send it to your friends send me an email telling me how wrong i am uh, but read it with an open mind because this isn't i don't see it as a left versus right issue i don't see it as a libertarians versus socialists i just see it as people who want to see a better world and want to abolish poverty and um, and what strategies can we use to do that and you certainly have nothing to lose by reading the strategies I put forwards in my book and taking a and making an educated decision on whether you agree or not based on the arguments that I present
0: thank you very much Anthony
1: thank you so much for having me back on your show it was a real privilege